1: People really seem to enjoy the last episode, which was a compilation of uh, different episodes we did, which was presented by Harley Davidson. And I was just showing you on the Instagram. I posted a, um, I, I posted a clip from the Mike Vining interview, which I included in that, and it got, as of now, nearly twenty thousand views on this one clip. So I've noticed that people just. They love Mike Vining, and they like these new videos I'm doing where it's like best of from the show clips. So. That's cool. Yeah, follow us at Soft Rep Radio, and you'll see those. Um, but yeah, I was I was blown away like twenty thousand views on one video on Instagram. Pretty cool, I thought. I don't know, man. I never know
2: what um what people are gonna like, what they aren't, what's gonna be popular. Like you know, I I barely use Instagram. I don't, yeah. I don't really get it. I don't but, even have
1: my own anymore.
2: Um. Like, yesterday, I was uh, going through all this, like, old crap I had laying around and stuff at the bottom of boxes and things like that. And I was pulling up all uh, this old Army stuff, getting, like, sentimental about it and stuff. And I found my old ghillie suit that I had used um, yes. when I went through the sniper school. I built this ghillie suit myself, used it in the sniper course in 04. Um, and I just, like, took a picture of it and put it on Instagram. Like, oh, here's my, here's my ghillie suit. And that thing got, like, 700 likes or something like that. I'm like, what? Well...
1: <laughs> I I think it's because people are used to your Instagram. They're seeing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff that you're modeling. And and I think there's –
2: But there's stuff on there of me like traveling around the Philippines, like meeting with like important people. You know, I I could – I don't know, do all kinds of – there's stuff of uh, me in Damascus in Syria meeting with Syrian people uh, cruising around Iraq there's even a picture of a dead ISIS guy I took in Iraq, and I. <laughs> there's, but I mean, it's just like people, you know, if you post a picture of like me shooting a Glock, like people like really like that on Instagram.
1: I don't really know. I don't really get it. I think people still like you as Army Ranger Jack Murphy over maybe journalist Jack Murphy. I, I, I think that's definitely the case. Family man Jack I think Murphy. That, I think that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, So I noticed on the last live episode that we did, uh, we both kind of forgot to mention that John Bolton was appointed as U.S. National Security Advisor, and that's a pretty big uh, thing to mention, I think. Uh, So he's going to be – he's expected to begin the job in just a few days, April 9th. He's replacing uh, H.R. McMaster, former Army general. Um, many people know Bolton as the yeah. former U.S. ambassador. i got to turn that down. That's, uh, I think, Luke, because we're going to have Luke Ryan on in a second. Um, yeah, he's the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Uh, under George W. Bush. And this is a pretty interesting appointment. Um, I remember originally when McMaster was appointed, leading up to that, uh, Rand Paul, for example, who's a non-interventionist, pretty open about that, when they asked who should be the uh National Security Advisor. I Remember, he's pretty vocal in saying anybody but John Bolton. And now this is who we have.
2: Well, you remember, you know, you told me, Ian, uh, during the campaign, you're know, like, you know, Donald is being vague or, or what? What he allows, um, and any any good politician does this during a campaign. But I, I think you you mentioned it about Donald that specifically with Trump that. You know, he, he allows people to project whatever they want to believe about him. So sure. The, you know, you were telling me, you know, there's some people you know who uh, are like, you know, Donald Trump will be like, no, we're not playing this fucking shit, and we'll go and like turn the Middle East into a glass parking lot. And then there are other people who are like, no, Donald's going to pull all of the troops out of the
1: Middle East, get us the hell out of there. And by the way, I, know, I do know what you're referring to, and when you say people... I'm, I actually don't even remember off the top of my head who it was, but it is someone who was a higher-up person in the Army. Um, as people know, I, I used to produce David Webb's show on Sirius XM, and I remember he was in the office with David, and he is like a highly respected guy in the Army. Gen- genuinely don't remember his name off the top of my head, don't remember his position, but it's not like this was just a random guy. And, yeah, he was saying to me that he believed that when Donald Trump became president, we would pull completely out of the Middle East, have nothing going and he, he's never said that, you know, so...
2: And it's one of those things where, okay, now you're choosing what to believe. Yeah. Like, you're convincing yourself of something that isn't true. And what we've actually seen is that, you know, like, we've pretty much followed just a normal stay-the-course uh, kind of policy in Afghanistan. No changes. I mean, it's just the same war grinding on yeah. from from George W. Bush to Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Like there's there's a lesson to be learned in here that the president has changed three times. We have these three very different personalities and different political thought
1: um, to each of these people. Even um, with but, Syria, you, you know, a lot of his base thought that he would not get involved in Syria. And when we did, the whole idea of dropping the Moab, the mother of all bombs, yeah. there, there was a lot of disappointment. It in was base. uh, it
2: was like one of those alt right memes because those the the people who are like alt right have a very like convoluted weird um. Ideology, and I don't know. Does alt right even
1: exist? It seems like it's going away like very quickly, actually. I don't, I mean, I don't know. A lot of those people would say that they're not alt right or anymore. anymore. And, it, and it's one of those things where what is what is alt right? It's a hard you'd thing have, to find. Yeah, you'd have to talk to them because, because I don't understand it. Yes, yeah, some of the people who get labeled as alt right are like the genuine white supremacists out there. And then some of them are conservatives. But
2: those people were white supremacists before anyone ever heard of the alt right.
1: You know, for sure, they've always been neo Nazis. But then there are people I think who are genuinely they're conservative. They're against the establishment, and they somehow get grouped in with these idiots. Oh yeah, sure.
2: Or even libertarians get thrown in there. Yeah. and they're like, oh well, you know, you're non-interventionist, you know, so you're, you know, or, or you're you're pro-capitalism, so you're like the American <laughs> fascist party. I, I've read that, and it's like
1: incredible stuff. But do you do you think? Uh, appointing John Bolton goes against kind of his America first type of policy and, and even that he was going to be a departure from George W. Bush, he critic, he publicly criticized George W. Bush on many occasions. And yeah. like, this is a guy who was in the administration during that time. Uh,
2: I mean, you can't look for consistency in, in, amongst politicians and Donald Trump is, you know, emblematic of that. He's like an extreme, <laughs> an extreme example of that. Um, does it go against his policy of America first yeah I mean I suppose
1: but I mean I just well the reason I say that too is because I think of John Bolton as a guy who believes in a big military you know more funding for the military down the but line so
2: does so does Donald Trump he's always sure. talked about more funding for the military
1: absolutely but also yeah he is a guy who probably I don't know if you'd say it in these words but you know, there's that whole discussion of, are we the world police? And I think a right. guy like John Bolton believes, yes, we are. We need to be.
2: Well, what's scary about people like John Bolton is they they believe in this sort of philosophy, you know, this Serrania uh, philosophy, this idea that we're going to reshape the Middle East, uh, that, that uh, Ralph Peters advocates also. And you've seen that. Uh, I've published it. I've put it out there a few times, um, that map. Um, that came, I think it came out of a white paper that Peters wrote about it was showing how he wants to redraw the middle east he wants to redraw all the boundaries and separate all of the countries um in a new and different way and um and john bolton is one of those people um they have always seen iran as being kind of the linchpin of that that once they take down iran they bring about some sort of regime change over there they can start rearranging all the chess pieces in the middle east um as we've seen, I mean, this we have a, we have a dubious track record. We don't do very well with regime change. We don't do very well transitioning dictatorships over to democracies. You know, we saw that in Iraq. Um, so, I, I, and there's actually a very interesting story about how President Obama had an opportunity. Must have been, oh, what year was it? Now, it was it was like early on in his second term, and he had the opportunity to press the button and turn off the lights in Iran and and do a regime change over there. And it was a it would have been a joint American-Israeli operation. I was told basically what the whole scheme of maneuver was going to be, how it was going to play out. Um, And Obama was the one that it came down to him and he was the one who had to make the decision. He said no. They were even doing these tests out in Nevada, testing these um, bunker busters Um, and again, it was a, it was a joint program between the Israelis and the United States and the program, (laughs) the, 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 so they were doing like test missions for Iran, uh, for the, for the, uh, military strike and (laughs) one of the names, and I'm sure this is not the real program name. I'm sure this was tongue in cheek. (laughs) The one that was mentioned to me, was called news, new Zion, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't think that's the real like. I don't think that was the real name. I think that was just a, a nickname that probably some people in DOD or the CIA or uh, or even the Israelis gave to that whole uh, scheme of maneuver. But um, Obama said no um, to that. He saw the dangers in that. Even George W. Bush came around after uh, after we toppled Iraq, and then Dick Cheney wanted us to invade Syria, and W was like, "No, we're not doing that." And then there's, this, of course, the other incident with Obama where um, he had to back down uh, to his own red line when they used chemical weapons in Syria. And he made the decision not to invade Syria because he just saw that as being um, – it, w- it would have been counterproductive. And I think he honorably fell on the sword rather than go and make a foreign policy blunder just because he was afraid of uh, protecting his own ego at yeah. that
1: point. What do you see as the main reason that McMaster is out just going back to this? And, and also, you know, is there someone that you think would have been a better replacement? I,
2: I think for Donald Trump, he sees uh, he he doesn't have a political ideology. He's coming to this from a sort of like reality TV background um, in and in a, to some extent a New York City business background, even though he was a minor player in New York City real estate. It's really funny if you talk to people from outside New York, they think he like reshaped the skyline of Manhattan. Like, no, he, that never happened. Um, mm-hmm. But be that as it may, that's the background that President Trump comes from. And I think what's happening is that he's just kind of um, free associating from day to day. You know, anything he says, we have to take it with like such a big grain of salt, because then he changes his mind. And I think McMaster probably was really grinding against Trump because of because of that. And he probably had to talk Trump down off the ledge over and over and over again. Like, OK, you made these bombastic public statements. Now let me walk you back from that and get you back to reality. And, um, and so I don't know exactly what the um, what all the issues were that they butted heads on and exactly how that finally came about. But I, I it must have reached a breaking point, you know, and, and it'll reach a breaking point with John Bolton, too. I mean, how long is he going to last uh, six
1: months, a year? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, which is interesting, because when I looked at um, in the past, these guys lasted far longer.
2: Oh, yeah. But but this is. This is the Trump presidency. Yeah,
1: I'm, uh, and then as for the second part, is there someone? Let's say you know, it was President Jack Murphy. Is there someone that you think would have been a better selection than Bolton? Um, you know, for uh, for national security
2: advisors, there's definitely people out there. I mean, I'm not sure who I would select. Like off the top of my head, um, I think I would look at somebody probably who's a little younger. Um, not my age but let's say somewhere somewhere in between Bolton and myself um combat some, experience you think so, it's important not necessarily combat experience but somebody who has experience in this war um you know who who has seen the complexities and is not living in in some sort of fantasy uh gi joe cartoon like john bolton and people like that i, mean, I definitely prefer somebody who uh understands the costs of war. And, and that's why there's the, the uh, woman who was appointed to be the director of the CIA. I think it's good because she is a career CIA officer and she came up through the ranks and she saw all the bullshit that went on during the war on terror with uh, the Bush administration when they were putting pressure on the CIA. She lived through all that. So I think that she's going to be less susceptible to being duped. Yeah. To, you know, to, she understands the politics.
1: And so I prefer to have people like that in office. And we have another appointment being made, which is uh, Dr. Jackson as the VA secretary, um, which is Dr. Ronnie Jackson. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, and I should say secretary of Veterans Affairs. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more with Luke Ryan because he wrote two articles about it. So he could give cool. us a little more information. Um, but wanted to bring that up. And then we have this email, which, you know, we do check our emails regularly, send them to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I get tweets all the time of where do I send emails, whether it's a voice memo, question, any of that stuff. It's softrep.radio at softrep.com. That's where to direct them. Uh, So this is from Robert Fulton. Uh, Hello, I've just started listening to the podcast, which is awesome. I always keep in mind that, like, every show should be a home run because there's new people listening every time. Uh, I really love all the content. I read The Operator recently, which for those who don't know, that's Rob O'Neill's book, uh, on your suggestion and loved it. I was wondering if you guys had a list or uh, on one of the shows can say some of your favorite books from people you've interviewed. Thank you for your time. So I'll let you answer that first. Uh,
2: I mean, we've had so many great guests on, it's uh, hard to... Whose books
1: that you like, though, in particular.
2: Yeah, I mean... Uh, Tim Bax's book, Three Sips of Gin is one of my favorites he We mentioned him on the last podcast with uh, with Hugh Slatter. Um, you know Hugh served in the Rhodesian Air Force and Tim Bax was in the Salute Scouts uh, and Tim just wrote this incredible memoir not not just about being in the military, but it's a very African memoir. It's about growing up in Africa
1: and what that experience is like. Is that it? That's the only guy you got? I, I figured with you uh, you'd have a few I mean we've interviewed hundreds yeah, of people. I mean at this we're on point. we're
2: at the podcast like three hundred and forty something, right? I yeah, mean, I, I can't I can't I even can't think. keep
1: track either. I will tell you it's funny. I started the podcast and don't even know what episode we're on. We're in the mid three hundreds, but yes. Um which is crazy to think, right? Yeah, we're on three thirty we're on three forty. This is episode three forty, which means people could listen to literally, you know, like Fucking just hours upon hours, weeks of of us babbling nonstop. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, there's no one else that comes to mind for you. I mean, I could tell you one for me, but... Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, you know, it's been a while since we had him on, but Buzz Aldrin, his book, Magnificent Desolation, The Long Journey Home from the Moon was excellent. That's not his newest book. He has a new one out, actually. I was looking called My Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon. I can't speak on that one because I didn't read that one. Uh, but Magnificent Desolation was more about Buzz Aldrin returning from the journey into space. And you have to keep in mind, um, it's a weird comparison because you talked about Rob O'Neill's book here. Rob O'Neill comes back from, you know, this mission of killing bin Laden. He's able to come back, put out a book, do all these speaking engagements. When Buzz Aldrin came back from Walking on the Moon, it was a very different time. Right There, there wasn't this, you know social media presence where you could just have a automatic job. So his attitude was like, man, what do I do after this? And there wasn't a whole lot to do. So he did fall into alcoholism, depression. He had some speaking engagements here and there, but it wasn't what he made a main living off of. So he was doing these pretty weird jobs for a guy who's an American hero. You drink Ovaltine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he was, Um, I was telling you before we recorded, he was uh, working at like a used car sales lot and, uh, signing 8 by 10s and he even says like I was a terrible u- a car salesman and I I don't think I sold anything but they kind of just had me there as the novelty of Buzz Aldrin is here and it was it was kind yeah. of degrading it's like a trophy yeah yeah so I I think for him it was kind of uh degrading and embarrassing uh, and, you know, and years later, he's he's written all these great books, but it's a different time period. Yeah. But when he came out and said, like, hey, I have depression, I have alcoholism, and, and spoke at these events, he had people advising him, saying, like, Buzz, this is going to destroy you. Don't come out there and say this. And his attitude was, no, I, I need people need to know about this type of thing. Because and- we tried to hold our astronauts up as these, like, infallible American heroes, and they were supposed to represent the country in so many ways. yeah. And you hear, by the way, you hear this from um, from guys of all different walks of life. Like I even think Lanny Basham, who spoke to us here, was Olympian gold medal shooter. I think after he won that gold medal, he says like, "All right, what do I do from here?" And well, Ian, that's uh, I mean, it's not just that, man. It's
2: like this is a uh, this is soft radio, right? I mean, this is the life of every single veteran really of my generation i feel like and maybe in the past also but so many guys who i know um and so many guys of my generation who were in the war that saw combat all that stuff it's like okay now you're out of the military what do you do for an encore what comes after this and that's why you hear guys saying guys who are like 24 years old and they're like oh i'm not as cool as i used to be you know my my gory years are over now you know i used to be cool it's like dude your 40s and 50s are the good old days though like you haven't even begun yet you're just you know your coming of age story
1: is still happening it's funny you're saying this by the way because brandon webb said this on a recent power thought podcast he was referring to uh you ever see napoleon dynamite yeah yeah, he was saying that uh what is it, Uncle Rico, how he keeps referring to like playing football yeah, in high school yeah, it's, and I could have been this big star. Al Bundy. Yeah. I
2: once scored three <laughs> touchdowns in one game. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, bro. What did you what are you gonna do now? What <laughs> do something with your
1: life? Please. Yeah. So Buzz Aldrin's book, going back to the original question, really covers that. And for him right. it was a real thing because it's like it is true in the in the coming weeks of him walking on the moon, they're doing all these press tours, first men to walk on the moon. there's these like rallies and stuff, but then you come down from it and right. he's just you know kind of in his backyard sipping on a drink and he's like, where do I go? I mean, it's from here? Gotta be, and it's also got he was young at the time
2: it's also uh, isolating, I imagine because you know even if you're a combat veteran, you can go and find you know like combat vet groups where they sit down and talk about PTSD and Which stuff Which he like was, that. too. He was a combat veteran, so. But uh, not too many people walk on the moon. Yes. You know, he, he's part of a very <laughs> small club there, yeah. and there's probably not too many people who understand his experience of not just walking on the moon, of course, but being an, being an astronaut and having that sort
1: of fame for a short period of time anyway you know what i love to ask him about did you ever see the video of him knocking that guy well yes. not knocking him out but punching Where he him. punches
2: that douchebag in the face
1: yeah. yeah the guy says he never walked on the moon i and i don't blame him for that because if you watch the video in full context yeah, the guy was right in his face and, and he would not leave him alone there were various times that he Buzz tried was to walk like, away yeah. yeah he tried to walk away and he was like just leave me alone he's trying to tell security like get this guy out of my face and then at a certain point, just, you just—you could tell he had enough. He's—he's <laughs> a, he's a tough old dude. I've—I've I've seen him in person. We didn't get to interview him in person, but uh, you know, like my previous gig, saw so him walking around, and he's—he's he's a big, intimidating old man. Well, I mean, that's
2: like. Well, he's from a different generation. Like back in the day, it was like you were accountable for your words. Now it's like we have all these like sass mouths running around thinking they can just say whatever the fuck they want, and there's no consequences for it. Like I don't know. When I grew up as a kid, there were certain things. Like if you just disrespect somebody to a certain point, you're going to get punched in the face, and that's kind of understood. Yeah, you know.
1: (laughs) But uh, hopefully, we have him back on. I'd love to have him just come in here and sit down, shoot the shit with us, Um, and. Any other books before we move on here? Man, you
2: got to give me some time to
1: think this we, through. We've had hundreds I of I know guests. we have. Uh, and That's why I can't and, even... and, and several colleagues of yours who have written books. That sure. I I like, so. And I'm sitting here
2: right now holding a former teammate of mine. He wrote a book. And I'm Paul holding it in my hand. Shari. Shari. Um, me and him go way back. Um, and this is going to be a really cool book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Army of None. Because he's also a super smart guy. Um, You know, and he produced this. You know, I'm sure this is like a really thoroughly researched book about the automation of warfare. So um, we're going to have him on a podcast coming up in the future. Yep. Oh, and Ian, there is an email that we got in to Soft Rep Radio that I'll read to you. And I'll
1: also plug, I should say, that, you know, since you're a new listener to the show, Jack Murphy has four fiction novels out that you could purchase. I do. I'm my. I am my favorite author that has appeared <laughs> on this podcast. And uh, and Brandon Webb has, I think, four books out. Some nonfiction. Like that. He, I mean, he's got a few that he co-authored with you, but he's got the Red Circle, mm-hmm. uh, the Power of Thought, Total Focus, uh, the Killing School. So pick
2: those up. So here's this email came in from uh, a gentleman named Chad. Topic, and subject line: Big Bang in Pyongyang. Message, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up about the Big Bang I knew in yeah com- I knew that was
1: coming from the title.
2: What What the hell is he talking about? Oh,
1: really? You don't know what he's talking no. about? No. This month, I must have talked about it shows that you weren't on, because I have I have talked about it ad nauseum. No, I'll admit. Um, I, you've heard me talk about it. It's, it's the documentary Dennis Rodman did. Oh, yeah. Okay, in, That's that was the title own. of it? Yes. And maybe, I've, maybe, I've recommended it many times. Is that so Dennis no.
2: Rodman writing in, like, Shut the fuck up, Ian?
1: No, I... I I felt like it's become an inside joke on the show, just because I feel like every time we mention North Korea... Yeah, you want to bring up Dennis Rodman clips. Yeah, I, I find a way to, like, shoehorn it in there. So. I just
2: think those those random emails we get are hilarious. Yeah. and I, uh, I, Hey, I, I'll admit, I've talked about it way too much. And the other thing I had to bring up today was... Um, My uh, former teammate, somebody has hijacked his pictures and is, like, posting stuff on Craigslist, pretending to be, like, his son or his dad or something like that. Yeah. And uh, it's not. So this is a a former teammate of mine that I I served in uh, Special Forces with. And sadly, he took his own life last year. Um, And I got a message from his brother today. I'm like, hey man, look at this. And, and it was, yeah, somebody is using the article I wrote. I wrote like a kind of a tribute article to James on soft rep. And this guy, whoever it is, is kind of like taking this article and trying to use it as like his bona fides. Like, oh yeah, I know this guy. And, you know, but so just be aware that somebody out there is perpetrating a scam using James Hupp's image uh, and life uh, and using kind of my article and, you know, that I wrote for him, uh, you know, to backstop that. So I don't know. Hopefully that gets the word out a little bit about that so somebody doesn't end
1: up getting scammed down the line. Yeah, there's there's a lot of sick fucks out there. I mean, between that and then I was showing you some woman crashing Green Beret's funerals. There are so many sick people out there. Uh, there was, I had a woman contacting me for a, a while
2: um, because there was some, some guy was um, pretending to be an army ranger, and this is one of the classic scams. What they'll do is they'll, they'll suck these women in, and they'll tell them, I can't leave the army until I pay a fine. Or so, like, I can't retire until I pay a fine or something like that. So then they'll get the woman and, like, send them $5,000 or something like that. You don't have to pay a fine to retire from the Army. It's completely ridiculous. But this guy, this one person, this one case, was using pictures of my former uh, command sergeant major in 3rd Ranger Battalion pretending that he was this person. And this okay. person is still very much alive, thankfully. He's a good guy um but he the the scammer had taken pictures of this you know ranger sergeant major and was using it to
1: scam women and there's just some sick people out there yeah it's crazy shit um and then before we get to luke the other unfortunate news we have to mention uh british and american soldiers killed in syria were on mission to capture ISIS member pentagon says um, or they said ISIL member is it? Which, by the way, isn't it weird how they always try to say ISIL when the the rest of the world refers to it as ISIS? It's, I know it's technically DASH or the Islamic State, but I mean the, it's
2: because ISIL was put on the uh, foreign terrorist organization list, so it's there for legal reasons.
1: Yeah, but I feel like they try to get it this name to catch on, and just is not caught on. We all no, it, it's because
2: of, a le- like, legal obligations. It's not because of, like, they're trying to brand or something like but that. But isn't
1: the difference, uh, and I'll get back to the actual issue here, but isn't the difference that for L it stands for the Levant, right? yeah. and S it's Syria? Uh, is these Iraq it's- and Syria, yeah. So anyway, um, but yeah, so a British and American soldier killed in Syria last week were on a secret mission to kill or capture a member of the Islamic State of Iraq, or Levant, ISIL, as it says here, the Pentagon has confirmed. Uh, Master Sergeant Jonathan Dunbar from Austin, Texas, uh, former Delta Force, you know, who has passed, uh, and Sergeant Matt Tonro, an SAS sniper from Manchester, died in an improvised explosive device. Uh, blast in uh, and am I saying it right? Manbij, yeah. Manbij, Syri- uh, Syria. The pair were killed and five other troops were wounded on March 30th. So that's some recent, yeah, terrible news. Uh, I, saw, I saw
2: I saw the report this morning that they're saying it was uh, they were participating in a high-value target strike, which is interesting. Because that area of Manbij has been pacified. Uh, I mean, Benny was there not that long ago. And what happens is that, that there are still ISIS sympathizers out there, and they come out and they you know, put roadside bombs out and do IED strikes and stuff like that. I mean, I saw it when I was in Syria that the areas that the Kurds had taken over, whatever enemy is left, they transition to more like unconventional terrorist type of ta- uh, tactics. Um, but if they were really doing an HVT strike in Monbij, that's kind of interesting. Um, but, I mean, we'll see. It's early information.
1: Yeah. Who knows? All right. Well, with that, um, we should get over to Luke Ryan, who's kind of newer at the site. We've never had on the show before, but has lived a very interesting life uh, in terms of where he's lived across the globe and uh, former Army Ranger. So let's get him on. Joining us on the uh. show for the first time, as I said, Luke Ryan, former 3rd Ranger Battalion team leader, served four deployments in Afghanistan. And as I was kind of saying in the intro, you've lived a pretty interesting life, dude. The son of foreign aid workers, you lived in Pakistan for nine years and Thailand for five years, and then later got a degree in English literature. So there's a lot of cool stuff to cover.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I grew, up, I grew up overseas. We moved to uh, Pakistan when I was uh, three so I don't really remember moving over there. My earliest memories are up in, um, the, like the town where my parents were learning Urdu, um, where they, when they first went there. So yeah. Yeah. Um, we moved there. It it was like, it was, I don't know. It was a cool experience. I, I like, you know, it was cool to be able to grow up in different places like that. And, um, I, I feel like it's given me a, a unique perspective on a lot of things, you know, it living in Pakistan was hard on my mom, I think, because, you know, it's, uh, it's a hard place to, for, for women to live in general. Um, yeah, I don't have, so. si- I don't have any sisters. Um, but, uh, just me and my, me and my brother. Um, but you know, we all made the best of it. I, uh, when I was young, I remember we didn't have you know, some of the, some of the basic things, like we'd have electricity once every three days, we'd have hot water was a, a rare, a rare commodity, <laughs> stuff like that. But I mean, we had a fairly nice house though. And, and I mean, it was before nine 11. So it was relatively safe for Westerners. I lived in Northern Pakistan for most of the time there for five out of the nine years I was there. And, um, and, uh, up in Kashmir up in a town called Gilgit. And that was like a, uh, um, it was like a town that people would pass through to go to the bigger mountains like Nungaparbit or uh, K2 uh, and some big glaciers. So we'd get a whole bunch of like cl- famous climbers and stuff. I don't remember any of their names. I was pretty young. But uh, um, a bunch of the super hardcore climbers going through there. So people were used to Westerners. There was – tourism was like a thing there. Um, and it was all pre-911, so it was pretty safe. We generally had three, I guess – safety concerns that we would like flip through there'd be the war war with india because we lived in kashmir so i don't know if you know much about the uh the stuff that goes on in india uh, in pakistan and the dispute over uh, kashmir um it's basically just a disputed territory it's why india and pakistan have hated each other since day one um they both say it should be part of their country um, so we were always at the verge of like war with India. Um, and then, of course, there was the Sunni and Shiite conflicts. And then there there were te- tensions with Westerners. But the, the war with India. Um, well, I mean, it wasn't like a constant war. It was always like on the edge of war. Um, and, and it's like you know, constant it's like, proxy warfare between the two, isn't it? Um, sort, sort of, it, it's, it's kind of, well, it's probably more like a, uh, Cold War now, especially cause they both have nukes now. That was yeah. a big concern. Um, my, my family, uh, had made the decision that we would suffer the consequences of everyone there. Um, but we would leave if we were targeted specifically. So kind of in it, in it with everyone there. Um, but so nuclear war. I was there. We were there for the cargo war, which was an actual open yeah, in 99. war in uh, 1999.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting case study to look at um, for a couple of different reasons. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I, I was, but, that,
0: I, was I, I was pretty I was pretty young at the time. I ber- I just remember helicopters and that was about it. Well,
2: because it was the first time two nuclear powers went to war with each other, and mm. it was also a high yeah. it was a high altitude war. Um, mm-hmm. So you have soldiers fighting at high altitude. A lot of people getting altitude sickness. Um, you have climbers, you know, doing. You, you probably know. You know way more about this than I do, but I mean, you'd have like military climbers who are doing rope installations. So like you could have troops go up the side of a cliff face and then attack down on the enemy. Just really interesting stuff. You can find some like um, war college white papers written about it.
0: Cool. Yeah. No, actually, I don't know a lot of that stuff. I mean, I was, I was. uh I was nine or ten when that happened, and um, I, you know, um, my memories of, of Pakistan really more speak to the ability for children to block things out, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the troubles of the world. Because, um, yeah, I mean, they would be. Uh, my dad was telling me, um, you know, he remembers them taking casualties back and forth um, in in Gilgit, and that was about that was about it. Um, it was. You know, it was different. I, I, you know, they, Musharraf, President Musharraf, um, who was a general during the Carnage War, he he said later that that um, Pakistan's nuclear capabilities were not actually fully operational at the time, but nobody knew that then. Um, that that was definitely my my exposure to a kind of Cold War, I guess, which was interesting. Um, I. I don't want to say that I felt like I was constantly living under the gun with it, you know, or, you know, and constantly living in fear or something like that. But, but it, it definitely is, is different, especially in retrospect, knowing how, how close you can get to everybody just getting, you know, totally blown away. Yeah. Uh, the other one was, uh, the Sunni, Sunni and Shiite, you know, conflicts. That was another big thing, which, which, you know, you get in a lot of, uh, countries in that area of the world. um, you know, the, the first time I ever heard shots um, – what's, what's the phrase? Shots fired in anger. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the first time I ever heard somebody, like, shoot somebody else was – was uh, um, it was – I forget what year it was, but you just, I just heard it way in the background. And later my, my dad told me that a, um, a Sunni had shot a Shiite dead in the bazaar. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and there were times when that got real bad up there. Um, we had to leave one, a, a couple times. Um, one time I came back and the fighting was, they, they had, they had like in, in stated a, uh, a curfew that was super, super hardcore. Like you're liable to get shot if you're walking around out after curfew. Um, and, uh, I came back to visit my dad who was the only one still there. Uh, we had all left and I came back to visit and he had, and all the like, Windows were bricked up in our whole house, including the interior windows. He like carried a shotgun and his pistol around everywhere, and um, he had he had himself so dead bolted in that he had to have like a uh, a big ass hatchet that he could like knock down his deadbolts in case there's an earthquake because there's so many earthquakes up there <laughs> oh, it's in the Himalayas. Um, so <laughs> uh, so that that got pretty bad sometimes, but you know the the worst one obviously, especially. I mean again I was a kid I, I you know and I was a boy so I ran around and did did like I went to uh, Western schools uh, most pretty much most of the whole time um, so I didn't really feel a lot of the test the tensions against Westerners for a long time uh, until I started to get a bit older and then um, of course post 9/11 things changed a lot um, you know the the invasion. Cause I, I, I didn't know then, uh, I was in seventh grade when the U S invaded Afghanistan. Um, so I was in, I didn't, um, I didn't know then, but Gilgit where I lived is about 300 miles away. I think if I remember right from where I went to on my third deployment. Um, you had told me once that everything changed in Pakistan after nine 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I, when I grew up, the Taliban, uh, I knew about them, you know, in the 90s growing up. Um, we, had, we had taken care of several refugees trying to escape the Taliban, but they were largely on the other side of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and that obviously changed after 9-11. Um, so it was definitely – things just got a lot more dangerous. Security had to be up, upgraded everywhere. Um, and where, where it didn't, um, you know, they felt it. Uh <clears throat> when I was, um, and that, of course that started culminating into attacks on, on Westerners. Uh, you know, there was a, there was a, a church that some of my friends went to that I'd grown up with in, in Gilgit and it, uh, it was in Islamabad and, uh, the church was, and some of my friends, my Gilgit friends were there and guys just came in and just start throwing grenades down the aisles of the church. Oh uh, shit. Yeah. Um, and like just stuff like that there's a couple a couple more attacks and then my school it was my uh, second week of so I I had gone to a boarding school I mean so I went to kind of to a homeschool starting off and it was kind of a homeschool my parents didn't teach there there was like seven kids up in Gilgit and seven to nine depending on the year and uh, all different ages and the parents would take turns You know, or like that we'd have some volunteers and and they would teach. Uh, But once you start hitting sixth, seventh, eighth grade, it's like, okay, you know, we need to send them to some to like an actual institution, you know, a real school, basically. Uh, So uh, a lot of people went to a British boarding school in Murray. It was called. It was about an hour away from uh, from Islamabad, which was Islamabad was a 13 hour drive. From my house in Gilgit, but a one-hour flight because you're going through the mountains. like um, <laughs> You're going through the Himalayas. It's like hairpin turn after hairpin turn. Um, but anyway, so I went to the British boarding school and um, uh, some guys uh, came in to the school and shot up the school and killed six people. Um, that was my second week of eighth grade. Wow. Uh, yeah, so – you know, they. Were, I was. I was uh, headed to the library. I was. I was in like a kind of a study hall type, type deal uh, at the time, and you know, I just. I heard shooting. I was in eighth grade. I, I didn't like. I heard shooting like a handful of times in my life. You know, and I had never felt threatened by it myself. Um, I didn't. I was a civilian. I, I. didn't know what, what it was. I thought it was fireworks because it was one of my brother's friend's birthday. Um, so. I was, you know, I I did the whole, like, did the thing that a lot of people do, uh, in that situation. And you just kind of like, look around like, oh, what's going on? You know, Um, that can't happen here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: Um, was it, was it terror related or just like a regular school shooting type of,
0: um, yeah, no, it was, it was definitely terror related. It was, it was, uh, um, I'd say the experience probably was the same as any school shooting. Um, but the, the or the reasons for it were a lot different. They 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 left a note and uh I never got to read it. It, it had something to do with um Israel Palestine and 9/11. Um, that's that's really all I heard about it. But um so I'm just wondering did experiences like that, you know,
1: encourage you to say like I want to join the army, become an army ranger, you know? It reminds me because I'm thinking of the poster up there which you can't see, but Quinn Emerson grew up in Saudi Arabia and he said on the show like how much he hated Saudi Arabia was kind of his uh, influence to become a SEAL. Yeah, I, I'd
0: say that the, uh, I, I'd say that maybe from the attack on my school, um, I realized that in, in that I, I I don't like freak out when when people start like you know when shooting starts. So I, I feel like I I kind of knew for a long time that I that I was able to you know, handle myself in it. But the worst part about the shooting was, was I was just useless. I couldn't do anything. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I might've gotten myself killed now. I mean, there was, there was multiple guys with like, you know, machine guns with uh, AKs, if I remember right. And, um, and, you know, but I, I would still have felt, you know, I'd, I, I'd at least be going downstairs. I'd, I'd, I'd be barricading doors and I'd be, you know, barricading windows, um, treating people who got shot, stuff like that. You know, you, you need, you at the end of the day, you know, being useless and being useful was is the biggest difference between being a civilian in combat and, and a ranger in combat, in my mind, um, is, is usefulness. Um, and so I guess that maybe, I don't know that that really, like, pushed me towards the army, though, the attack on my school. More, more so was uh, some of the guys that I met that had es- escaped the Taliban um, when I was a little bit younger before that. Um, we had met one guy in particular that was a refugee from the Taliban and he they had uh, like tried to make him become um, you know to to join them Um, they they did this a lot uh, and he refused he was kind of a he was like a Persian um, Muslim poet basically studied like old Persian literature and he he uh, he's a really cool guy really really like nice very gentle very like really cool wise dude Uh, study you know study study literature a lot and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't join them. They they tried to make him like, you know, do all sorts of stuff, and they eventually just threw him in the desert to die. And he walked to Pakistan, um, and we met him. We took care of him, and we we helped uh, we helped get him. We helped a few people uh, get to other countries uh, like Norway and uh, Canada. Um, I think were two that I remember off the top of my head. But yeah, and 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 that made a big impact on me. I knew who the Taliban were from a young age. And that was one of the biggest reasons why I joined the Army um, was that my – you know, the country that I had grown up, um, you know, always – I always felt very connected to American culture. I grew up watching American movies like all the time, like a lot of American of, – of movies and stuff like that. And we every time we came back to the U.S. to visit every other year, um, every year or every other year, I would – I just – you know, I loved it. I, I've always loved – being American, my, my country happens to go to war with the Taliban, and the people that I knew so much about growing up. There's the whole just young man's game was a huge part of it. You know, yeah. I was young. <laughs> I wanted to do like cool stuff, you know.
1: <laughs> I, I'm just curious, Luke, um, being that you grew up in Pakistan and you're talking about mm-hmm. that you saw like the Sunni Shiite uh, conflict at a young age. Like, for for the listeners out there, uh, what like what is the biggest cultural difference that you see
0: between Sh- Sunnis and Shiites that people might not be familiar with? Um, man, you know, I don't know if I could really answer that question accurately. Um, yeah, I, I probably, hmm. to me, to me, it reminds me of like, and this is a familiar thing that, that Americans can maybe relate to. It doesn't answer your question directly, but it just, it reminds me of people's capacity to naturally fall into two sides of something like, and, and become like diehard supporters of one side, um, because you're born into it because, you know, for whatever reason, because, um, you hate your parents and they're the other side, because, you know, you, uh, you, you feel like everything the other side does is totally wrong. I've seen that in my, in, in my life a lot, I think in different cultures, is people's capacity to fall into two sides of, of, anything you know any argument
2: to pull into two extremes
0: right yeah i think i think it's easier that way it's easier to 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 see life through the lens of of you know my team is good and their team is bad um it 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 makes everything easier to, to digest rather than accepting and facing the reality that like you know maybe they're not so bad maybe they're not even maybe they're still wrong about some things, you know, maybe, maybe they actually are, but, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't really speak, uh, to, to the specific differences. I don't think to, as, as well as, you know, some people could, like I said, you know, I left when I was in eighth grade. Um, if you had asked me the differences between Democrats and Republicans when I was in sixth grade, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to give you a good answer either. Well, then. In, in uh, a
2: sense, okay. isn't, isn't the religion sort of a way to codify, a a different conflict that's about politics and economics and there's some more pragmatic things, but it gets colored with religion to make it seem perhaps more virtuous than it is.
0: Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. I mean, I mean, religion is, is a lot more ingrained into their society even than ours. I mean, you know, people talk about having, um, you know, we argue about things like having in God, we trust on our, on our currency. And over there, you know, you have to actually, you have to register your religion if you're a Pakistani citizen. You know you have to register yourself so like um you know and it matters <laughs> you know i mean when we were there uh, especially initially you know we we're they're like oh they're white they're christian you know whatever yeah um but if you were pakistani and and you know you had to be a part of an underground church if you're a christian you know that that would uh you know your, your life would be a threat um depending on who you were i mean if generally speaking yeah um you know so especially if you're a convert, for sure, you know, you'd be in trouble. Um, That's yeah. totally bizarre
2: to the American experience. I, I mean, I remember my uh, interpreter, he was Yazidi, and uh, it had to be on, on his on his national ID card. This is Iraq, of course. Mm-hmm. It had to, he had to, the same thing. It had to be on his ID card that he was Yazidi. And he told me, he's like, look, if I could not go to Mosul without you without us the special forces guys. He's like if I went without you just decided to drive to Missoule, they'd cut my head off at a, yeah. at like a checkpoint somewhere along the way.
0: Yep. Yep. Definitely. Um you know, and and the way that that's but that's exactly what you what you do is what you did. You know, you build bridges with with people. And eventually, you know, I mean, there was the attack on my on my uh school but but a um you know, in my dad's town uh or in in well, it was my dad's town then. Uh, at in Gilgit, in the town where my dad was when I was in boarding school, um, they were like anybody attacks this because he he ran a uh, an eye clinic up there. Uh, he's an ophthalmologist, and so um, they were like anybody attacks the eye hospital, you know, and like we're gonna, you know, we're gonna hunt you down and make you pay pretty much because he was giving, you know, a school an international school isn't necessarily directly giving to the local community in the way that a hospital is, you know? So, um, building bridges like that to those people is, and I think my dad's, the, my dad's hospital had just better security all around, you know, on the face of it. And, um, yeah, so they never, they never had to deal with that. But yeah, then we moved to Thailand after that. Um, after the attack on my school. That's why we left. You know, oh, okay. that was, that was the, uh, that was the catalyst the trigger to leave was, yeah, the catalyst was, um, you know, like I said, you know, we'll suffer the consequences of everybody else around us. You know, we're there to help them. Um, but you know, if we're being targeted, then, you know, we'll leave. Uh, yeah. so we did my dad found work in Thailand and it was good. Um, I didn't really know I was, I wasn't like growing up thinking I was going to be in the army. I didn't, I certainly didn't know I was going to be deployed like right next to, um where I lived. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. And I wouldn't say that helped me tactically ever, you know. I mean <laughs> I mean in, in, in Ranger Battalion you're just so caught up and just doing what you gotta do, you know, I'm not sitting there like, you know, I could be like, oh that's Urdu and then the interpreter would be like, Yeah I know and then I'd be like, <laughs> oh <laughs> And you know um <laughs> um you know and I, I don't know, you're not doing like cultural all, any cultural stuff, you know, as a, as a ranger, really. Um, I mean, I, I would say it, it gave, growing up like that gave me a lot of perspective that helped in Ranger Battalion uh, in general um, in the way that it's helped me in, in every stage of my life and that having been a ranger also helps me perspective-wise in other stages of my life. Um, you know, every, every profound experience I think that you have better enables you to tackle... Future endeavors, yeah. um, and and growing up overseas, and Pakistan was one. You know, the attack on my school was one. The uh, moving, living in Thailand was another one. You know, um, all that stuff. Uh, you know, being in the army.
1: I, I wanted to ask you, Luke. Moving on to a uh, different topic here. You, you know, you've been writing some really awesome pieces for softrep.com and I mentioned mm-hmm. in the intro that we talked about uh, former. Uh, Sorry, former Ambassador uh, John Bolton being appointed as the new national security advisor. But you just recently wrote about the new appointment to VA secretary, which is Dr. Ronnie Jackson. And you wrote two articles about this. You wrote an article called, Who is Dr. Ronnie Jackson? And then today we have an article up, VFW Voices Concern Over Dr. Jackson as the New Secretary of Veterans Affairs. So the first stuff I was wondering, yeah, what for those wondering, what is Doctor Ronnie Jackson's background? And um, yeah, from what I saw from the second article, there's some who are saying they don't feel he's completely qualified for the job.
0: Sure, yeah, he he, uh, um, so he's uh, Rear Admiral. He's still, you know, and he's an active duty doctor that works for, you know, the White House. He's the White House physician, um, and he, and so, he has I mean, been for the past two presidents, correct or three presidents yeah including this one no two including okay, this one gotcha um, yeah so so he um being a white house physician you're you know you're the president's doctor that's what everybody thinks of but you're also in charge of of um basically white house medical staff um so think of i, I forget the exact numbers. it's it's i think it's five doctors five nurses three medics uh, a couple admin admin people and uh, some something another administrative position, but um, and, and you're they're taking care of the president, vice president, and uh, all the White House staff and any people passing through the White House. Um, and he has a background in emergency medicine and like uh, uh, I think his his undergrad was in marine biology and, I, and he did like submarine hyperbaric medicine at some at one point, um, which just in general seemed pretty interesting to me, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, he's had a pretty successful career. He, um, he, you know, went to Iraq, um, and then got pulled for, to be white house physician. I guess, I guess they usually pull people from active duty because like for that position, because it's really hard to find a private practice doctor who wants to give up their private practice to go work in the white house. Um, (laughs) that's, that's what I read anyway. But, yeah, so he has a lot of experience. I mean, you can't really deny the uh, the experience. Well, he has a lot of experience in the military. You can't really deny that. You can't deny the fact that, you know, uh, he probably has – well, I, I mean, I guess you could. But uh, you're generally going to ex- expect a person in the military to care more about military people than, than than not. But the concern, like the VFW voiced and a lot of people are voicing are um, – well – is that he doesn't have experience in managing a bureaucracy like the VA, uh, which is a lot different than a medical team. You know, it's a lot different than a private um, medical practice, right? You're a politician. I mean, um, yeah. And, and so that's, that's what a lot of people are worried about. And I, I don't think that it necessarily means that he's going to be bad at it. I think people just, you just don't know, you know, and that's a big, that's a big gamble. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, a a lot of it comes from, you know, it's so hard to, to to like find information on this stuff because like, uh, it's so mired in like people that, that will be critical of everything that, you know, president Trump does just because of who he is. Um, you know, they'll, they'll say that, well, because he's appointing him, you know, you know, he must just be like, he he's appointing him and he knows him. So he's just expanding his inner circle and trying to make all of his friends. Well,
2: it's hard not to see it as like quid pro quo, because I mean, he was the, wasn't he the physician that was like, he's very stable. Everything's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think he said it
1: was in excellent
0: physical condition or something.
1: to
2: that. He's just got good genes.
0: (laughs) Right. That's the, that was the, um, he, he made a couple digs in that interview. Um, he said like, uh, we are going to be working with the president's uh, diet and um, fitness, and he's more keen to the diet part than the fitness part. Um, he kind of said, like, a little slyly. But um, even though uh, yeah. Donald Trump admittedly loves to indulge in McDonald's and KFC, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that that actually is the biggest uh, criticism that I've heard uh, on on the actual person himself. Uh, and and yeah, I think people are worried that maybe he's, you know, he's just trying to continuously appoint people that are, that he just knows personally. Um, You
1: think think that they're just hinting at that, that he basically, you know, Trump said to him, just say excellent things about me and my physical condition and I'll (laughs) I'll do something for you.
0: (laughs) I don't, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Um, it's probably, you know, for everything that we see that happens. Up there, there's there's ninety other there's ninety other like moves that people are making and and um, you know uh, political chess moves that people are doing to advance their own careers or advance someone else's career who in turn will advance someone else's career who will in turn yeah. do something good for me you know all that crazy house of cards stuff.
1: <laughs> so from what you see, is it is it a good appointment? It's replacing uh, David Shulkin. I don't know if you had
0: any feelings on him, the previous VA Sec. I don't. Really? No, I, I, I've, I've seen the, all the interviews where he was basically, you know, people say caught red handed, uh, with his trips to Europe and, um, uh, stuff like that. Um, I know, I know from, from interviewing people myself that, uh, people in, in the VA, especially in the whistleblower community, people that, you know, have, have called out somebody in their, um, in the VA bureaucracy and then just get totally like shut out of the entire world. You know, they still have their job, but they basically work out of a tiny little office and they, the, the, the the people will work to discredit them and stuff like that. Um, and and I know they're so sick of people mishandling funds that, that, that community, the, the whistleblower group, I've talked to a few of them and they, and they are just like, you know, from, from the lower level of like that, that dude who was like, uh, scamming, uh, he was getting kickback funds for the guy, the guy who owned the parking lot across the VA street, who was like, I forget exactly how he did it, but he was, uh, misreporting the funds and making millions of dollars, um, to the VA and the VA was, you know, paying him for that space. And, uh, the guy who managed the, the finances and, uh, subcontracting for the VA in that facility, um, he was getting kickbacks to keep it quiet. And eventually they got caught and, but that that's just one story that that happens all the time. There's the landscaping uh, thing where the guy was subcontracting to his son's landscaping company and there was like it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars and no landscaping ever happened ever you and know I, and I stuff talked like that.
2: to uh, one veteran who blew the whistle on the uh, VA doctor who was sexually assaulting male yeah. patients um, and we know one of the guys. Yeah, the story. I mean, the stories just go on and on and on, and you're just like, what the hell? Like, is it makes me wonder. Like, is this going on in other governmental agencies? And there's just more of a focus on VA, and this is something that's happening like across the board, or is VA just like a specifically really fucked up organization?
0: Some something about it. I, I think people wrongfully conflate uh, the problems with treatment like the problems with uh, the transplant system, the problems with like just, you know, the, the regular wait times and stuff like that. They wrongfully conflate that with the mishandling of, of funds and the cover-up type yeah. stuff you get at like the mid-level, um, you know, management. Um, and and I I don't know. There's something about it that, that I guess I, I can't really say what exactly. It's something about the VA in particular that makes it easy, especially when it comes to subcontractors and stuff like that. To, to conflate those funds and and skim a bunch off the top, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what. So so, going back to um, Shulkin you know that that's what a lot of people's sentiment are towards towards him. They hear another, they hear that another person is taking a flight to Europe and and. You know, right or wrong, they're just so sick of it. You know that they're just like, yeah. man, like, <laughs> you know, I just um, which I, you know, I, I can't blame them for for thinking that. Um, um, when
2: I was at the uh, the what is it, the Commanders and Chiefs Forum during the election campaign, Trump, you on MSNBC or uh, it was on NBC. It was Matt Lauer, yeah, yeah, the now disgraced Matt Lauer, <laughs> um, yeah, that guy. Trump, uh, he he promised, he pledged uh, right then and there. He's like, no, I would not privatize the VA, would not do it. So we'll see. I mean, seems like he's not going to. But it's not
1: a very popular stance. No,
2: I I don't think it is. I don't I don't think it's a good idea myself. And, um, and there
1: are veterans. I mean, it is the more capitalist way of doing things, but some it, would say you know, I mean, I,
2: a lot of a lot of vets are just I mean, it's not necessarily capitalism in that sense because, you know, it's a service provided to veterans sure. um, some of whom are, you know, in poverty or uh, all sorts of other things. So I don't know if there's necessarily a capitalist No, well yet. what I've
1: heard you know I guess the best way to describe it is is almost like the vouchers for private schools type of thing. It's it's almost like that type subsidized of subsidized by for the, the VA. government. Yeah, exactly. Where if you were in the um, military they'll throw you into the private healthcare system but you'll get some type of voucher um, but yeah, I don't know if that is a good solution because there's there's certain things that I bet probably VA doctors are better at treating that they see more often with veterans than they see in private practice i don't
2: know what do you think luke i mean you have the background in uh aid and medicine uh what's your take on it
0: um well i mean just the whole healthcare system whether it's va or not the va is totally screwed up i feel like entirely you know um the the va is a good example of of how when you know when the government runs stuff you you get bogged down with bureaucracy and people can take advantage of it especially in a country as big as the u.s and then um you know, our, our private healthcare system is a good example of, of um, you know, how this weird hybrid between, uh, I guess, you know, try to stay away from, like, buzzwords, but, you know, socialist and capitalist medicine, the weird, like, monster hybrid that we have that's, like, I don't really know exactly what it, what you would call it, but um, the worst of both worlds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, And and there's
1: so many, you know, they they were brought up in in the primary, not just this primary, but four years ago, eight years ago, because this has been ongoing, of what I think are some pretty simple but helpful solutions that no one seems to be doing. You know, the biggest of which I've heard is, why can't you buy health care across state lines? Seems like a pretty easy solution, um, but, you know, I, I guess it just doesn't benefit the people up top, so that we have not done if it, it, it makes sense to me though why can't i buy a health care plan from south dakota or something if it's going to be cheaper for me than in new york
0: yeah i mean i i don't know that stuff that stuff is like crazy complex and i wouldn't presume to I agree yeah it to, is to know the uh, ins and outs of of you know the upper echelons of our healthcare system i'd have to that'd be like a lot a a lot of research yeah no i
1: i I agree it's you know it seems simple to me that solution but i also am by no means a healthcare expert no yeah
0: yeah yeah i don't know and i think with the 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 va um i i would say personally it's it's the the first thing that needs that same with same with our politicians the first thing that needs to happen is not uh shift in I mean a shift in policy is, is what is necessary, but the first step in that is a shift in culture. You have career politicians running, you know, politics and you have you you have uh, same I mean same with the VA. You have bureaucracy people that know how to work the system to their own advantage, you know, climbing the ladder successfully in the VA. I mean and and, and what what we need is people in those positions with an ethical backbone you know, with like some kind of moral compass, you know, because then the policy shifts will happen. Um, so I, I would ask, how do you, how do you get that shift in culture to happen? Um, otherwise, you know, you can take out people here and there, you can shift policy. Um, you know, you can hope that those people shift policy because you ask them enough, yeah. <laughs> but they're probably not going to unless, you know, and they're always going to be doing stuff behind closed doors. Um, you know, you need, people with moral and ethical backbones that, that, you know, at least know that what they're there for is to help out in the VA help to, to help veterans. I mean, um, that's their primary job. I,
1: I know you're, you're limited on time, Luke. So before we go, I do want to mention, and at least let you talk about it, you have an upcoming novel, the first Sparader, And yeah. uh, it sounds like that's a pretty exciting venture for you.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, I've really enjoyed writing it. So like I said, I, when I grew up in Pakistan, um, my dad would uh, get really good quality cuts of meat in Islamabad, and we'd drive it all the way up to Gilgit and coolers, and he'd give a part of it to our movie store guy. Um, and our movie store guy would give us free movies in return. So as far as I was concerned, nice. I, we just have, I just got free movies. Um, so I watched movies. I sucked up uh, fiction when I was a kid, basically is what I'm saying, like crazy. Like, I, and That's how I learned about American culture. That's how I learned you know, about all sorts of stuff. Um, and how I, one of the ways that I grew to love, you know, the country that I, that I was a citizen of, but had, had spent very little time in, and, um, uh, uh, that, that developed my love for fiction. And and ever since then I I was, I I wrote, so I wrote stories. The first one I wrote was like, um, you know, it was like 60 some pages book about Boba Fett, uh, when (laughs) I was like, I don't know, in like third or fourth grade you know, or it took me like a long time, but you know, I just wrote, hand wrote it you know, in my little notebook with stickers and star Wars stickers and stuff. And, um, yeah. And I just kept writing through the army on my deployments. I wrote a lot on my deployments and, uh, um, and yeah, I, I film is really my, my first love, but, uh, you know, you can write a bunch of screenplays, but that's the, that's, you know, you, that's not the final product. So, so I, I tried my hand. At, I've been trying my hand at writing um, a book, and I, I just finished. I'm in the revision, or I finished a, a, a little while ago, and I'm in the revision stages now. Um, it's about. It's it's a part of a big series that I'm I'm planning on doing. Um, that, uh, you know, we we can maybe get into a, another time, but this particular story it's it's set four years after a, a, a weaponized smallpox virus. Wipes out a good population of the Earth, um, and they call it the Red. Uh, and so it's four years after the Red, and um, it's basically governments dissolved. Uh, it's set in um, near in Eastern Tampa, Florida, uh, and a 15-year-old kid is his nobody like nobody in the whole area. So many people died from the Red that nobody knows anyone that. Survive. So all their friends, all their family, you know, everybody's basically starting over um, with the exception of a few people, including the main guy whose brother lived. And his brother, you know, right before the beginning was just killed. You know, he survived the red, all this stuff um, four years ago. He's just killed by a neighboring town in a, a skirmish for resources. And so the East Tampa militia is going to war with this neighboring town over resources. And he's 15 years old. Um, and he lies about his age and cause the militia age is 16. So he, he lies about his age, joins up and, um, goes, goes over to fight. And it's, it's a lot about, you know, it's, it's not a, it's, it's about a 15 year old kid, but it's not like a young, young adult like book. It's, it's really kind of dark. Uh, <laughs> and, um, it's about the discovery of war and politics and, um, you know, th- seen. you know, because I, I, I've always been a big believer that fiction is a way that we can better look at different facets of the human experience, different bits of reality, you know. Um, and, you know, what better way to it's about the discovery of war and politics. So what better way to, you know, illustrate the discovery of something than through the eyes of, of like a teenager who's discovering everything anyways, you know. Um, and then, you know, it's about a lot about the realities of combat. And, you know, writing it, I also found something that I didn't intend to, to talk about, but the um, emotional um, repression that a lot of veterans, combat v- veterans do, like how that comes to happen. Because he comes out at first, because he's 15, he gets like no training, you know, and he gets thrown into these situations. Um he doesn't like freak out in the sense he's not crying and stuff, but he's just like, Oh, you know, like I was when I was, you know, in eighth grade in the school shooting, like, I don't know what to do, you know? Um, and, uh, then, you know, people just eventually tell him, stop, you know, think about what you're doing. Like all those feelings, all those things, put them away, put them away, put them away, you know, and, um, just, just go do what you, you know, you know what you need to do, do it now. Um, and so I, I talk a lot about how the, well, I don't expressly talk about it, but you see how the long-term effects of that, you know, when you're you're constantly having to rightfully repress that stuff. And it's not a conscious decision, I don't think. You're just like, okay, I'll just worry about that stuff later, you know? And then, um, yeah, so I, I kind of t- talk a lot about that, like the, just how that works, I think. And, and you get to see that through his, his character um, as time goes on. I wouldn't necessarily call it like a, Super disillusionment story because that's what it kind of sounds like when I talk about it. But um, it's it's uh, it's been fun to write. It's not long, it's right. like 135 pages. Looking
2: forward to reading it. It sounds like uh, you blended together a lot of different experiences you've had in life
0: mm-hmm.
2: in the book.
1: Yeah. At, at what yeah. point could we see, could we see a release date around?
0: Um, I'm hoping around a month from now. Oh so. wow!
1: All right, that's quick. All right, so we're excited uh, for that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say that you could follow Luke on Twitter at and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce <laughs> this because it's like a take on Les Miserables, obviously, but yeah, except with ginger. ginger in there. So I don't even know how you'd pronounce this. Lay <laughs> Ginger Rob. Le Ginger Rob. All right. There you go. <laughs> but but spelling it out, follow, follow Luke on Twitter at L-E-S underscore G-I-N-G-E-R-A-B-L-E-S. Le Ginger Rob. All right, and and on Instagram at Luke Ryan LLTB. That one's a little easier at Luke on Instagram. Uh, glad to have you on, man. I know it was kind of last yeah. minute for you, and we appreciate you coming hey, on.
2: Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Luke. I mean, we really just kind of scratched the surface with a lot of these topics, but um, yeah. it was good. I'm glad you could do it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Good seeing you for the first time uh, via Skype.
2: Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime soon.
1: Yep, absolutely. All right. Thanks. Well, great having Luke on. I'm looking at this board up here, and we have some really awesome guests coming on for this month. George Hand will be back on again because, as we said, we never really talked to George about his Delta Force days. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. I mean, we hear all about his human trafficking work. I'd love to hear the kind of origin story of George Hand uh, Mike Vining will be back on Which has been in high demand Of people of saying when are you going to have Part 2 of Mike Vining uh, And plenty of other guys Amber Smith who we had on Power of Thought but we um, And we had a really uh, You know we had a Skype interview With Amber Smith a while back But it wasn't great audio quality It was kind of brief I'm looking forward to And, and by the way that was when I would record on Skype on our, our end And on their end we didn't have so the, the audio quality just fucking sucked if you listen back to that episode. So this will right. be better audio quality like the one that we did on uh, Power of Thought. So looking forward to having her. Just a lot of great guests. We'll do better this time. Yeah. No, they, well, dude, those, remember back when, when I was recording these at my house? It was like, I'm on Skype, you're on Skype, the guest is on Skype. Yeah. The audio quality just was never good. It's a huge difference now being able to have our own studio that we go to, I think. I mean, we still use Skype as we just did for that interview. But it makes a big difference having a mixing board and not relying on some program that records where half the time there's some echo that I can't get out of there. Just all all different types of weird shit. So with that, and I'm going to take a sip of water. There's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches. And that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our premium crates have been an EDC med kit that we had put together by Benghazi Survivor and Army Ranger U-Bird on the show, Chris Tonto Peranto, and a ballistic shield insert for your backpack. Uh, Right now, as 2018 progresses, we're really stepping up the crate club game, um, putting custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at crateclub.us. Once again, that's crateclub.us. And if you're not aware, for you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just launched Kuna. We have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether you're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at Kuna.dog. That's Kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And as a reminder for all of those who are listening, for a limited time, you can check out... A 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops Channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show training cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch that content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel, and that's now at specopschannel.com, and take advantage of this limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. Only $4.99 a month, specopschannel.com. Uh, as always, email us, softrep.radio at com. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those five-star reviews really help. And I think that's it.
2: All right, until next time.
1: Yes, sir. We're out.
0: You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought Podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL Sniper instructor Brandon Webb.